Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Ed LaRoche began working in comics in the mid-1990s for Malibu Comics. After publishing creator-owned work for years, he has written and illustrated The Warning, his first monthly comic published through Image. It'll be out this November. In our interview, we begin with Ed reflecting on the spark that ignited his creativity and his early years developing as an artist. Ed shares his experience working in comics during the mid-90s and the seismic shifts that were taking place in comic book art at the time and his response to that. What course did Ed take with his artwork? Ed discusses his reason for leaving animation and jumping into live-action storyboard work. How are these different from each other? And what important advice did Joe Casey share with Ed about storytelling through art early in Ed's career? We turn our attention to Ed's latest work, The Warning, the influence of the film Alien on it, and the connection between Star Trek and of The Warning's Special Combat Brigade team, their motto, Die with Honor. This installment of Creator Talks is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop on Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. There will be a special guest appearance on Sunday, November 18th, and the Black Friday weekend special sale starts on Friday, November 23rd, running through Sunday, November 25th. More on that after the interview. But now, let's turn our attention to my interview with Ed LaRoche, talking about his latest work being published through Image Comics, The Warning, coming out on November 28th, here now on Creator Talks. Ed, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for inviting me. Now, since it's your first time on the show, I'd like to get a deeper understanding about your start in comics. I understand you taught yourself art and storytelling. So you're endowed with a gift, my man, because I understand it takes hard work to develop that skill. But the seeds were there from the very beginning. It just needs cultivating. So how did you begin to learn to draw? Did you trace or reference other comic artists' work? And were there other artists outside of comics that you used to develop your art skills. Going back to your original premise there about being born with a gift, I'm getting to a place right now when, uh, where I, I think about that. I don't think I was born with a gift. You know, if anything, uh, the art is definitely something I work towards because if you looked at my earlier stuff, it was just terrible, terrible work. And like you said, I mean, it's been a, a lot of hard work that's basically got me where my skill level is right now. As far as like the sort of inspiration or, you know, the thing that created the spark early on, I'm an only child. So my mom used to send me to New York to uh, spend the summers with my uncles and my aunts and my cousins. I had an older cousin that was an artist and he was making a book. He was uh, working on a book with a friend of his. And so at a very early age, the idea of making your, your own comic books was just, it was logical. It was a possibility. It was never a thing that was impossible to do or to try for. It was something that was just being done, you know, at a pretty high level, too. I mean, the stuff that they were doing, it was kind of Marvel-esque. But the amount of work that went into that stuff for two guys, you know, in Jamaica, Queens, New York uh, in the 70s, was pretty impressive. It left me with a lasting impression. When I was going over there, I would go there and I would see the level of skill, you know, I would see what they were doing. And then I would come back home. I would try to build up my skill level. So when I went back the following year, 
I would be better and more impressive. So my first initial spark really when it came to like becoming an artist or wanting to become an artist was I was just trying to impress my cousin. At some point, it became kind of like a coping mechanism when I was alone back at home. You know, I would play with my action figures because action figures back in the day, that was a big deal for us. I know it's a big deal now, but my cousins and I, we would have campaigns, we'd have stories, you know. <laughs> we would be playing with these characters and the story would end for that summer. And I swear, we would pick up some of those storylines the next summer. So the idea of story and telling a story, that was kind of ingrained on me uh, at a very early age. And then the drawing was this other level that fit kind of on top of the storytelling thing. But really, I mean, it's kind of a shallow reason why I tried to become an artist, which is basically just to impress my cousin. <laughs> was there anyone that was a mentor to you to become a professional artist? someone that you looked up to? I mean, besides your cousin, or was your cousin your mentor in a way, helping you learn to be an artist? I think he was more of the competition. There were a lot of mentors, you know, but not in a sense that someone took me under their wing and said, hey, you know, do this, do that. There were just lessons that I learned along the way, you know, the stuff that made sense and the stuff that really stuck with me. One of those lessons was, um, his name was Chuck. I can't pronounce his name, but I think he's working in comics right now. I met him at San Diego Comic-Con and uh, I wasn't ready. My stuff was just totally amateurish, but I kept sketchbooks. I've always kept sketchbooks. And I ran into this guy and one of the things he told me really sort of set the tone for my present situation. He looked at my sketchbook. He's like, look, your anatomy is not that great. But there's something here. What I would recommend is instead of a bunch of these cool little drawings of Wolverine and Batman and all these other things, you should develop your own story. And every drawing that you do is about fleshing out or developing that story. That was something I really took to heart. That was a lesson. It wasn't coming from a mentor, but it was definitely coming from a person who knew more about the craft than I did. You know, it was a great bit of advice. And, you know, I pass that out to artists I come across uh, all the time. So the focus was then on storytelling, not just individual pieces of art, but telling a narrative, regardless of whether it's a comic book or a storyboard or something for a screenplay. Now, your first published work was through Malibu. Was that a Mortal Kombat miniseries backup story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Raiden versus Kano. This was around the time that Malibu was partnered up with what would become Image. At least the coloring department was. You know, there was a lot of crossover back in the day. And the speculator market was rising. It hadn't boomed yet. I think it peaked right around midway through the early years of Image. But Malibu was kind of on the... Uh, on the cusp of that. I forget exactly how I got that job. I think maybe somebody recommended me. By that time, after I got that advice about sketching and developing my own storylines, I spent a lot of time relearning how to draw the basics. You know, all my sketchbooks prior to that and all my comic books prior to that, they were things that I wanted to draw. And in order for you to become a more well-rounded artist, you have to draw things that you don't necessarily want to draw because they're not exciting. I don't know, like a car or, or, or trees or, or any of these other things as opposed to superheroes, you know, Wolverine popping his claws, you know. So I would say that um, when it came to the actual look of comic books, I would say that Malibu, Marvel, you know, right before all those guys left Marvel to form Image, all of their stuff 
became about page layouts and the cool double page spreads and the cool shots to the loss of story. It just became about like, okay, you turn the page and there's, you know, Magneto and he's got his chest out and you're like, oh yeah, that's great. And I think Malibu got caught up in that. And I think somebody just petitioned them. They were like, hey, you know, give this guy a shot. And I did my best. The Raiden Kano, I forget which issue it was. It might've been three or four or something like that. Now it wasn't long after that that you began self-publishing. Was this due in part to the publishers preferring a short, like 20-page story versus your own work, which would be much longer? You could make it a graphic novel. And also, was it some of the limitations that you found with having to do art for another writer? So you and the other person had to mesh really well in the form of storytelling. And it kind of restricted your freedom. Were those two of the reasons that you went into doing your own work? Almighty, for example. There's a lot of time in between that Raiden Kano book and then me publishing Almighty. Because everyone was getting work when Image was uh, doing its thing back in the day. And there was a style that everyone had to sort of do. I applied myself to try to ape that style. And... You know, the thing about it is that there are just people who are just better at doing that stuff than I was. You know, I was coming from an era, John Byrne era, Neil Adams and all those guys, Gil Kane and all those guys. That stuff looked really different than what Malibu and Image were concentrating on and what they were doing. After the crash in the 90s of Image, there wasn't enough work. There was a time period where, you know, the boom years where, you know, people were making like $30,000, $40,000 residual checks, $100,000 residual checks. And then very quickly, all that went away. But my skill level wasn't high enough to sort of reap the benefit of the boom times. A friend of mine told me about animation. Animation was a little bit easier to get into because there's more work. I jumped into animation and started doing storyboard cleanup for Sony. And my first show that I worked on was Extreme Ghostbusters as a cleanup artist. So I worked in animation for about 10 years before I got to a place, not only with the skill level, but with my desire to have something that represented my point of view and the way I wanted to tell stories and something with a barcode on it, something that had my name on it. Because animation is a great place to, if you're an artist, to make money and keep the lights on. But at the end of the day, you're still in service to someone else's vision and the way that they want to tell the story. So comic books kind of kept on popping up, you know, and I was just like, I need to tell a story that's all mine. And it probably goes a little bit further back. I was saying earlier about my cousins and us creating our own stories. It was never something that was an impossible task or we didn't know how to do it. At some point, I was just like, you know what? On top of animation kind of being um, a great place to make money, there are limitations in animation when you're working in it. Your next job or getting your next job depends on who you know and, and how they feel about you and the kind of clicks that you're in. And it just became very political to maintain a solid career in animation. I felt creatively, I needed to have something that represented what I could do. That's where it came from, actually. By day, are you still doing storyboard work? Yeah, I do storyboards, but not in animation because doing storyboards in animation is very hard. And I don't shy away from hard work. I mean, I just spent the past five years working on The Warning, this new book that I'm rolling out, did 350 pages. but. The thing about animation is like you're working 11, 12 hour days for like three, four months. Sometimes you get a schedule that allows for six months for a show and you're cranking out like hundreds of drawings, doing a ton of revisions. And at the end of it, you're just working towards a layoff. 
that's not a sustainable situation for an artist, you know, for anyone. No. You know, imagine if you had to deal with a layoff every year. You know, most people, they went through the recession. They're like, oh, I'm being laid off. It's the first time that they've been laid off. I'm like, dude, that's my life in animation. You get laid off every six, four months. It's hard to, to live that kind of lifestyle. It's like being a comedy writer, too, for TV shows. You know, I'd heard about the writers for Carson. They might have like a 13-week gig. There's no guarantee you had work beyond that. It was like they'd have to start over almost every time because they would just let writers go constantly and just get new ones in. So I can see what you mean. It's kind of a scary life choice to take that kind of profession where you're working yourself out of a job eventually. You know it's going to end. No certainty. With that in mind, I was doing other things as well. You know, I taught like a storyboard class at this place called Noman in Los Angeles. The thing about that is like, I think it was like seven years after I taught that class, an old student of mine reached out to me and he was doing boards in live action for movies and stuff like that. He reached out to me and he had a couple questions and he just wanted to let me know that he really appreciated the experience of going through the class. And he had some questions. He was working on Fast and the Furious. I forget which one it was. I think it was either four or five. I forget exactly. But um, he wanted my advice on a couple things. And I was thinking, you know what? Maybe we can both help each other here, you know, because I'm looking for a way out of animation. You know, I can see the handwriting on the wall. You know, animation is not for old artists. There's this thirst for the new young people, you know, who can work 11, 12 hour days and not complain about it. So I was looking to do something else. So we got together and he kind of said, hey, you know, why don't you do live action boards for TV? I'm, I'm rep by this one company. I can make an introduction. You know, this is what they like to see in the portfolio. And I was like, yeah. So from animation, I made this jump into live action boards. And that's what I'm doing now. The difference between live action boards and animation is uh, you're making more money in live action boards, but you're not working as hard. You know, you're not working, breaking your back. You know, I mean, yeah, you have like a smaller schedule, a smaller window to get the job done but it's not like months and months and months and months and also the thing about live action boards is there's more jobs there's more work out there if you can do it it just made more sense to focus on that so that's what i did so you said earlier that you spent five years working on the warning which is coming out through image comics issue one on november 28th and you did over 300 pages already this is a big deal actually having a book come out through image it's a huge step after self-publishing and doing the animation work and the storyboard so how did you pitch this to the publisher what got them interested it's a very trippy story there. Well, let's take a step back. The self-publishing thing was a very interesting experience because for me, I just wanted to have a book that represented my point of view or the way I tell a story. My whole goal was just to have a product that had a barcode on it. I self-published it and people liked it. And I started getting calls from producers who wanted to turn it into a movie. And so partnered up with this one guy and we were trying to develop it as a film, my first book. And I took a lot of very interesting meetings, meeting a lot of uh, really cool people. That wasn't really my intent. That was sort of the cherry on top of just having a book, you know, that was all me. You know, I did not expect all the stuff that came from it. We ended up uh, working with Ken Nolan, who uh, wrote Black Hawk Down. And then we were dealing with Philip Noyce, the director of Salt. He was attached and we were trying to bring this to market. We were trying to make it happen. But my experience doing self-publishing was kind of like a revelation in a lot of ways. I never expected to have these kind of meetings. I never expected people to react so strongly about a 180-page black-and-white self-published comic book. But 
I never realized or I never expected the reaction from comic book stores. It was really tough to get the book into the stores. It was a real struggle. You'd be surprised how unreceptive people are to giving a book like Almighty a shot. I was really shocked with sort of negative response. You know, they were just like, nah, we're not interested. We don't even want to give it a shot. I experienced that with Almighty and then uh, my second book, Waveform. And then I started The Warning. And during the course of making the first couple issues of The Warning, I partnered up with a production company. I pitched them an idea and they commissioned a comic book out of me. That's what Bad Summer is, you know. And the trippy thing about Bad Summer, this is another kind of revelation about the comic book industry. We tried to get Bad Summer into the Diamond catalog, into previews, and there was a lot of pushback, and uh, ultimately we were unsuccessful. They refused to carry it because they didn't like the cover. Not the original cover, which I made for it, because I had uh, done a different cover, and they had printed out 250 copies that we rolled out at New York Comic Con. Once they ran out of those 250 copies, they developed a separate cover, which I thought was really super cool. I didn't do that one. And I guess uh, the guys at Diamond just didn't like it. The excuse that I heard was uh, it didn't look like a comic book. So they refused to carry it. If you have a comic book and Diamond refuses to carry your comic book, you're very limited about what you can do with that thing. That was the first revelation of understanding that who you're affiliated with is very important. Having an image eye on your book gets you past a lot of gatekeepers and people who are actively trying to sort of like maintain the market. So that and a lot of study about artists and artist movements and realizing that every major artist needs to be kind of curated. It has to go through a particular gallery, you know, a hot gallery or a famous gallery in order for people to pay attention. You know, the same thing with a book. If you're being published by Image now, the uh, reputation of Image kind of precedes the project and people are more open and receptive to it. So I realized that, you know what, I needed to make that happen in some way. I wasn't quite sure how to get in. I, I had, you know, I had submitted stuff in the past to Image to everyone. That's apparently not how you get into comics. Just submitting your stuff is not enough. The same thing with animation. If you're just dropping off your portfolio, you're not getting work. You know, you need somebody to take your portfolio and put it in front of the right person and kind of talk you up. And that's how I've gotten all my jobs in animation, storyboards, just being an artist. The work wasn't enough. No, I know what you mean. It's like, it's not enough just to apply for the job. Someone needs to talk you up because <laughs> there's thousands yeah. of people going for jobs. It's just like there's thousands of people that want to publish a comic book. And without going through a major publisher who accepts you or have someone speak on your behalf to vouch for you, you're going to spend a lot of your own money and then, like you said, have a hard time getting the book into stores because, I mean, the means are there now with technology to publish yourself. There's just so many people. How do you stand out? And you're right. You do need someone to take your portfolio, look at it, and then go to someone with it and start speaking about it. So for me, that was uh, Joe Casey. I'm sure your audience knows who Joe is. I mean, he's been around. He's a uh, part of Men of Action with Steve Siegel, Duncan Rowe, and uh, Joe Kelly. They are a collective responsible for Ben 10, Big Hero 6, and various other things, Marvel stuff too. And uh, I've known Joe for a long time. We worked together at this bookstore in Burbank. Uh, this is before Joe became a writer in comic books. We saw each other over the, over the course of years, and um, he's aware of my work. I think we bumped into each other not too long ago. 
And we decided to grab some lunch and just chit-chat and catch up. And I brought a galley version of The Warning. And I showed it to him, you know, just to gauge what he thinks about it, you know. And he was, like, looking through it. And he was like, you're not self-publishing this, are you? And I was like, yeah, you know, I could do that. No worries. He was like, no, 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 no. No, this this has got to be through image. You know, and I was like, no, that would be great. I've never been able to get into image. He's like, no, no, no. Don't worry. I'll let them know. I'll show them the work. And this is going to be published to image. Lo and behold, that's how it happened. The story, for people who don't know, this is the synopsis that's been published. There's an enormous machine slowly materializing in a major metropolitan city on the West Coast. No one knows who sent it or why, except perhaps the malevolent beings gliding silently through the inky vastness of space towards Earth. Now, in response, there's a joint multinational combat brigade called Gladiator 2-6 that's deployed. They have next-generation military science and weapons, and they're supposed to stop any extraterrestrial threat that emerges. Were you highly influenced by the Aliens franchise? Yeah, Aliens in particular. I remember watching Top Gun in a movie theater in Glendale. I think it was the Pacific Theater. I forget exactly. And in the front of Top Gun was the Aliens trailer. And when I first saw that trailer, I was just like, what? What was this? It was so awesome. And back then, that was before VHS, practically, I think it was, or maybe VHS was just on the scene. And there was no, you couldn't watch trailers online. So part of the reasons why I saw Top Gun so many times, besides the fact that it was a great movie, was to watch this Aliens trailer. And for the longest time after that movie came out, Aliens was like my favorite movie. But then I think they started releasing Alien or a remastered version of Alien. And I was like, I watched that and I was like, you know what? I'd already seen it. Aliens was so much more impressive to me. But after watching the first one again, I was just like, well, actually, this is probably a better movie. What Ridley Scott did in that movie. That being said, the first two Alien movies really left an impression on me. I can't say the same for the subsequent installments. Now, this combat brigade, they have a patch, a motto. It says, die with honor. I love that. Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cool-looking patch they wear, too. I love that. How did you come up with that? Awesome. I remembered a scene. I was talking with a friend of mine because one of the things uh, some of my friends like to sit down and talk about is Star Trek. And there's a big debate between uh, Next Generation and DS9. Some people who like Next Generation don't necessarily like DS9. I personally felt at the time that DS9 was a superior show. And one of the reasons why that was was because the Jem'Hadar which was this you know, warrior alien race, and a scene where Worf was captured by the Jem'Hadar. The Jem'Hadar, they're kind of looking at him because they had heard about Klingons. They had heard about their, how ferocious they were. And they were like, man, I got to get me a piece of that Klingon. You know, I got to see what they're all about. You know? So there's this one episode where he ends up killing a bunch of Jem'Hadar. You know? They're challenging him one-on-one. And I think it's in that scene, the commander... Uh, says something similar to that, like something similar to dying with honor or something like that. And I was just like, oh, that's sweet. That's really sweet. Um, So I just kind of changed it a little bit, you know, because the sentiment was there. You know, it's like, it's kind of like this warrior code. And I thought like, you know what, that just felt right. You know, I didn't look at it further than just like, oh man, that sounds cool. And it says everything that you need to say about where these people are coming from. Now, when you wrote this story, was it difficult now to start writing with cliffhangers the end of each issue? Was that tough to do? Was it something really different for you? Okay, that's very interesting because prior to starting on The Warning, the other books were conceived, 
and create it as one work, you know, as opposed to a collected trade paperback, which is like a series of single issues. So with one work, with the graphic novel, how the story plays out is going to be different than how stories play out in a trade paperback. Your beginning, middle, and ends, you know, kind of get a little bit more leeway in a graphic novel format. Here's another example, not a mentor necessarily, but a person that had some pretty good advice right before I started The Warning, because originally The Warning was just going to be another graphic novel. My friend said, look, the thing about individual comics over graphic novels is that individual comics have a lower price point and more people are willing to spend $3.99 or $2.99 at the time, I forget exactly, than they would something that's $12.99 or $14.99. I thought, hmm, that actually makes a lot of sense because there are chapter breaks in the earlier graphic novels but the thing about how I approached the graphic novels, film kind of informed how those stories kind of unfolded. And I was thinking with the warning, I was like, maybe film is not the template. Maybe television is. And that's what, at the time when we were getting a lot of great television. I could see how, you know, within an hour, you can tell a lot of story, do a lot of setup, and you didn't necessarily have to pay everything off at the end of that hour. You know, you were building up to a bigger payoff. So I could see how that format could work. As long as it wasn't like an open-ended story, you'll eventually get to the end of that. You'll eventually get to the end of the story, and it'll be like a collective. You'll get the trade paperback of the warning. You'll be able to sit there and read it, and it'll be like this thing. It'll be a different experience as opposed to getting it in a monthly installment. But even within the monthly installment, all the things that need to happen within the story will happen. Even the cliffhangers, you know, the chapter breaks, you know, they're just chapter breaks. But the thing about the end of a comic book that's so really cool, for instance, like Mark Millar and Brian Hitch had a pretty amazing run with the Ultimates. And at the end of each issue, it didn't necessarily connect to the beginning of the following issue. So it was just a jumping off point and a way to reset yourself and reset the story and maybe get into other aspects of the story. You know, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? And then eventually you'll come back and progress the storyline. If someone were to come on to your series, say issue two or three down the road, do you think they'd have a tough time picking it up or the way each issue wraps, would they still be able to jump in? I think they will experience the book, but they might not necessarily experience the fullness of the book. Like, so for instance, you can watch Empire Strikes Back. Maybe that's your first one, right? But it doesn't have the same impact if you don't have Star Wars. So I think for me, that's one of those things that I'm kind of asking from the audience, which is sort of like, look, I'm creating this story, okay? I'm hoping that you'll read it from the first issue, because it's a much more fulfilling experience. You know, you can, yeah, you can read two, three, four, five, six individually, but it's a better experience if you read it the way that it's intended. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I have some fun questions that I ask all my guests, just to learn more about you as a person. So, first question, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I like to draw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, just sitting down and drawing and listening to music or playing around on the internet, maybe I'll play some video games, stuff like that, but always going back to the drawing, you know, those are like little breaks. I like to draw. I like to sit down. Um, right now, I'm not working on a book. I'm working on the other aspects of trying to, um, to bring the warning out to market. 
But there's stuff that I'm making notations, working up to my next book. That's fun to me. That's my relaxing time because it's almost like a it's almost like a meditation. You know, I mean, not the act of creation, but once you've kind of laid out what you're drawing and then you just try to make the drawing better, that time period of just sitting down, listening to music, you know, maybe have a cocktail or two and just developing the drawing. That's meditation to me. You know, that's my fun, actually. Thinking back to any birthday, which one stands out in your mind the most? What was so special about it? The thing about having a birthday in August and being an only child is you don't get to experience the birthday thing in school. Like, mm. you know, sometimes you'll be in your homeroom and you'll be like, oh, so-and-so has a birthday and da 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 So, and then being an only child, it's just you're, you know, you're a single parent. Maybe you'll get one gift, maybe you won't. That being said, I mean, birthdays aren't really that important to me, basically. Oh, you know what? There was a really good birthday. My ex-girlfriend at the time, this girl named Wendy, she threw a little surprise for me. She said that she needed to get something in Hollywood and could I give her a ride? And this is before they made Hollywood really nice. Um, so it was kind of a sketchy area. And then we had to get out of the car. And she's like, oh, I'm looking for this particular store, looking for this particular store. We're walking around. We get to Highland and I'm like, babe, where are we going? What's going on here? Uh, right up the street, you know, I start to notice a bunch of people walk, milling about, walking around. And I see this one guy this uh, selling a bootleg merch. He comes up to us. He's like, hey, you guys want to buy a shirt? And it was Terrence Trent Darby, right? And at the time, he had just released a really good album that I'm forgetting the name of, of course. But we were huge fans of it. And I was like, oh, man, Terrence Trent Darby is playing tonight? And I turned around, and she was, like, looking at me, and she just whipped out two tickets. And she's like, I wanted to surprise you. And I was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> Use my language. <laughs> but that was a really good surprise. You know, that was great. That Yeah, that was a good one. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Now, thinking back to when you were a kid, a teenager, young teenager, what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Evil Dead 2 poster, the one with the skull with the mm -hmm. eyes, and it's kind of grinning at you. Mm -hmm. Probably not much more than that. I had album covers. Okay. You know, like I took album covers and I taped them to the wall. So I had Prince 1999 and Cameo and Billy Idol and all these guys plastered up on my wall. Yeah. Okay, so I know what you listen to now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's, yeah, exactly. That's where I'm coming from. But not too many movie posters. I, I can't say there were too many. I remember the Evil Dead one because it used to drive my mom crazy. She hated it. She hated, <laughs> she hated walking past it because, you know. Followed you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Hypothetical question. If you were stuck on a deserted island, to pass the time, what is the one book that you would want to have with you? Something you would enjoy reading again or something maybe you mean to be getting to reading? Call of the Wild. Oh, okay. It's the first book that I remember being my favorite. And there are things going on in Call of the Wild that reveal themselves to you the older you get. You know, it's kind of like watching Apocalypse Now, which is my favorite movie. It's like the first time you watched Apocalypse Now your understanding of it is completely different than the last time you watched it. And, and I think Call of the Wild is the same thing. You know, you understand yourself uh, a little bit different and you're able to relate in deeper, meaningful ways that you are incapable of doing when you were younger. So Call of the Wild, it's a short book, though, you know, so, but yeah, I think Call of the Wild is the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Now, another hypothetical. If a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory or accessories that come with the action figure? Sunglasses, 
iPod and a sketchbook. And on the iPod would be Prince, Billy Idol. <laughs> Prince, Billy Idol, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, Sonic Youth. Uh, yeah, all the great artists. Okay. When you're resting and relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? I guess that would be vodka. <laughs> okay. You know, like a nice vodka to just kind of sip at, you know, while you're listening to some ambient music and just kind of toiling away, trying to make the drawing what it needs to be, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. It's either vodka or like water, you know, ice cold water. My wife likes vodka too. She um, drinks that now with some uh, sparkling water and she likes a, a um, it's a cranberry. I believe it's a cranberry flavored vodka with a little sparkling mm. water, which is pretty good. I'm drinking water right now. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, it took me going to Eastern Europe to really appreciate just vodka on its own. You know, it's like to get really good vodka, you don't even feel the burn. It's just smooth, mm. you know. And for me, I don't like my alcohol to taste good. You know, I want it to be like medicine. You know, it's just like, oh, God, I don't want to be like refreshed. Like, <laughs> oh, thank God. Couldn't wait for this beer. You know, I, I just need it to be like, okay, here we go, bam. And then you're like, all right. Yeah, if it tastes too good, you want too much. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to have like citrus and like pineapples in it. You'll be like, just, oh yeah, give me another one of those. No, 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 no. It's, you know, let's not be too clever about this. Yeah, if I'm going to sip and take my time, it'll be rye whiskey on ice with a little mm. bit of water. I'm going to sip and take my time with something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Final question for you. What is the one question that in an interview you have not been asked yet, something you want people to know about you that just doesn't come up in conversation, something you want people to know? I think we're entering this age where the less people know about you, the better. You know, um, yeah. there are certain questions I just I just won't answer, you know, because I don't have an opinion that, that I want to share with the public. You know, um, they don't they don't really need to know. So that's where I'm headed to. You know, I guess when people start to read the work or get into the other books, I guess more about like questions about what I'm trying to achieve in regards to how I'm telling these stories. You know, there are certain rules that are in play that I'm trying to exploit. And I think I would be pretty happy when it gets to a place where people are curious about like the decisions that are being made, you know, like why, why is this happening? I can only get so far into that. I can get into format, page layout and stuff like that. But beyond that, you know, the creative process, that's a mystery to me as well. And as far as what it means or what you're trying to say, is that something you want the reader to really figure out and not be outright told? That's the nature of art in a very basic way. You know, you can have this intention, you know, you can have this desire to say something. The art or the appreciation of art is a subjective experience. You know, what people take away from it, especially nowadays, that's them bringing who they are to the story. So in a very real way, all I can do is tell the story. And if you relate to it in a different way, that's great. I love that. I love that idea. I have no control over that. I think if you remove the author or the artist, or if you sort of downplay that personality that's creating the work, it's easier for people to sort of put onto the work what it means to them, as opposed to hearing the guy say, oh yeah, well, this is my thing about apartheid. This is what I wanted to do. And this is, well, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the work speaks for itself. Whether you achieve that or not, whether you reach that goal of, of uh, getting across your intention, it's almost like it doesn't matter, you know, because 
if that person who's reading it or enjoying that the work doesn't have the sort of experience that the author has in regards to whatever they're talking about, they're going to take it in in a different way. So you can be talking about fly fishing and uh, some guy who's never fished before sitting there thinking, well, that's kind of boring. I don't get that. And some guy who does fly fish will be able to appreciate the story in a way that the other guy can't. It'll also be different than what the author is trying to get across because maybe they didn't have a father to do that with. They did it with their brother or, or whatever. A lot of different ways of, of looking at it. Okay. So the warning coming out November 28th through Image Comics. Looking forward to it, Ed. I read the first issue. I enjoyed it very much. Looking to seeing and reading the rest of it. Awesome. I want you to uh, experience it, you know, and I can't wait. It's right around the corner. And here's another thing, you know, um, you know, art is not finished until the people have a chance to see it. It's not complete. Even though I've already done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, it's not finished until people have a chance to take a look at it. So I'm waiting for that. You know, I'm waiting for that moment. Well put. Ed, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. Coming up in the weeks ahead, Josh Schwartz and Chris Heron. Josh is the guitarist and Chris Heron, the drummer for A Sound of Thunder, a heavy metal band out of the Washington, D.C. area. They have a comic book out titled It Was Metal. It's an anthology with many different artists and creators contributing stories that tie in with the tracks of their latest album, It Was Metal. We will talk about the comic and the music and how the two are tied together. Also coming up in the weeks ahead, Matt Groom from Australia and Eduardo Ferragato from Brazil will talk about their latest comic book, Self Made, being published through Image Comics. It's out in December. This is their first work together and the first Image comic for Matt Groom. And the book will be Kyle Higgins' first editing work for Image Comics. For any comic, he is the author of Cal and Hadrian's Wall. Matt and Eduardo will both join me on the show. We will talk about where they live, what is so special about it. They will talk both about the comic book, the other members of the creative team. And Eduardo and I will discuss how his artwork has changed from working on The Last Phantom through Dynamite Comics to his latest book, Self Made. If you are a fan of Westworld, this is the comic book for you. Now about that appearance at the comic book shop coming up in just a couple of weeks. Matthew Rosenberg and Ed Brisson, writers of Uncanny X-Men, will be there Sunday, November 18th, noon to 1. Now the comic book shop is just 30 minutes from Philly. It's on Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, so if you're within driving distance of that, it's worth checking out. Plus, on Black Friday weekend, there will be a half-price sale on all back issues that are in the bins and 25% off books in the case. 25% off of most everything else, and there will be Danger Room deals and more. The Danger Room contains a lot of additional comic books that come out just for the sale and lots of toys as well that are not always on sale. So it's something worth checking out if you're shopping for your comic book fan or yourself for the holidays. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. I know you have a lot of choices. There's a lot of stuff out there, but taking the time to spend 45 minutes to an hour with me while I interview comic book creators is really appreciated. And if you want to follow me on Facebook and Twitter, it's at Creator Talks Pod. And on Instagram, at Creator Talks Pod, where I post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my personal collection. You can write to me at contact at creatortalks.com and listen to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And if you have a chance, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. Even if you don't have time to write a review, a star rating is a big help. And remember, the podcast is free. Most podcasts are free, but this one for sure, all the content. There's nothing behind a paywall. It's all free for your listening pleasure. And I have more interviews in the works coming your way. Once a week, 
every week on Thursdays. I don't know where the time goes. Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away, and then we roll into Christmas. So, wow, <laughs> time flies. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>